This morning's scripture reading comes from Psalm 8. Let's hear God's word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you go hiking in a woodsy area that's known to have bears, it could be helpful to bring bear spray with you. Now, I wasn't familiar with what bear spray was. Some of you may not know, but it's also called bear repellent. Sounds like bug repellent. If you're going in the woods and you don't want mosquitoes to be on you, you put on bug spray. So if you spray this in yourself, they stay away. Bear spray is very different. It's the equivalent of pepper spray formulated for bears. Uh, You have it if a bear is charging at you, you spray it at the bear so it uh, causes stinging in the eyes and difficulty breathing so you can run away. I heard a story this week. I was with some people who said that they know a family that was going camping and was advised to get bug spray, and one of the parents tried to apply the bug spray to one of the kids and found that that stinging sensation immediately uh, signaled to them that There was something wrong with how they were using the product. And you can understand, it's bear spray, it's a bear repellent, it sounds like bug spray. And so they they had experience in one realm that did not apply to the next, and that was a, a great error. And the world is complicated. There's so many things you can learn and figure out and feel like you have enough of a foundation to look out and make choices. Uh, and yet we get so much wrong. We make mistakes, we think we know how something works and we misunderstand it. And therefore, we find out that, that that fundamental misunderstanding has implications. And, and because life is so complex, we have to take care of our physical well-being, our mental health. We have to be relationally uh, managing relationships. We have skills that we have to acquire and hobbies that we should enjoy. And we need to make a living and provide for things. Being a human being is quite complicated. And none of us are going to be good in all of those areas. You could have great physical health, but be terrible at your job. You could um, be somebody with a great particular skill, but you don't have any good relationships. And so there's something about being human in this world that's filled with potential. But all of us are going to have areas of failing. And those areas are discouraging. Now, the Bible does not make you an expert at everything. Becoming a Christian does not mean that the whole of your life will go well. But one of the things the Bible presents to us is is there are some foundational things that if you grasp, while you may not be great at everything, your life as a whole could start to, to get in order. So then you can grow. And even where there's failings, there's ways to deal with it. The alternative... Uh, The warning of the Bible is you can be great, you could have status in life, and you could have health, and you could have money, 
that find at the end of your life you are filled with regrets that you've wasted your existence. And so we're, we're finishing a short series on relationships where we've talked about the four relationships relating to God, our relationship to ourself, um, how we relate to others. And today we're talking about how we relate to the world. And these go together, but the picture in the scriptures in the Bible is that when you, when you, um, experience that restoration and renewal in, in a relationship with God, and it starts to change who you are, that will change how you relate to other people. But on that foundation where you're, you're starting to grow in those areas, it also changes how you relate to the world. And that's going to be our focus for this morning of uh, looking at Psalm 8 and, and seeing how we relate to the world. If you look at Ephesians 1, or Colossians 1, uh, the mystery of God's plan is that Jesus came so that all things in heaven and all things in earth, that's the language of, of Ephesians 1, would be brought to unity. And so, so, yes, Christianity is concerned about God, it's concerned about worship, it's concerned about your soul, but it's also concerned about who you are as a whole person. And it's concerned about a, a growing number of people on the globe that, that understand that that in this disordered world, we can start to uh, change the direction of things. And so how we relate to the world is part of the, the scope of what it means to have this new life. So in, in, uh, in our talking about it today, I want to highlight three things. One is, the first is just the call to be like God in the world. Secondly, I want to talk about God in the world. And thirdly, more of God in the world. So like God in the world, God in the world and more of God in the world. So beginning first with being like God in the world. That's actually one of the things that we find from the very beginning of the Bible that helps us understand what it means to be human, uh, what our purposes are. Uh, the opening pages of the Bible present humanity as having a particular dignity. Uh, a particular wisdom. And, and you find in the stories of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, we, we learn a lot about God in those stories, but two things we're meant to see is one, God's power. He has power over the darkness and over the elements of the world, and, and God is powerful, but God is also wise. We keep hearing that everything he does is good. It's making everything better. And the picture is he takes a lifeless, uh, dark and chaotic uh, situation, and he orders it so that the ending result is a garden that is beautiful and human beings that are, are living and that there's life everywhere. And in the, the unfolding of that story, a, a number of important things about human beings are told or are given to us. Um, but to highlight two, one is uh, Genesis 1 says human beings are made in God's image and likeness. So in the same way that if you stand in front of a mirror, what you see is not you, but it looks like you, or if you look into a, a reflection on a lake or a body of water, you're seeing something of the likeness. So human beings, there's a lot about God that we don't have. We're not omniscient. We're not omnipresent. But, but to the degree that we look to God and see his goodness, his justice, his truth, his compassion, his wisdom... There's something of that that we're supposed to then take with us into the world so that the rest of creation, looking at human beings with all of our uh, advances, that they should be experiencing something of that reality in our world. And so uh, in this picture in Psalm 8 where God's glory is above the heavens, 
God's glory is meant to be in the earth. And one of the ways that God's glory is meant to be seen by God's design in the earth is through image bearers, people who go into the world. And therefore, we are to have uh, the power, take the power that we have and steward it wisely. And in doing so, uh, to be almost like God in the world, in the way that God is over all. Psalm uh, 8, verse 5, speaking of humanity, says, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. There's sort of royal implications in the imagery here that of all of the created beings in the earth, humanity has been exalted so that that we're almost, you know, God's glory is set above the heavens is the language of Psalm 8, but you've made us just below that. You've, you've lifted up humanity, and that's the picture of Genesis 2. God makes the human being, and he prepares a garden for the human being, and he, he lifts them up from the dust and places them there and gives them the task of guarding and keeping. Uh, so one thing I said is that we're image bearers, but another thing, the task of humanity is to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. And what we saw God doing in Genesis 1, spending a a seven-day pattern of ordering things, of making things good, of filling with life, that pattern is set for us. So even in the Ten Commandments, that final day where God rested is meant to be how we live our lives. We have six days to go into the world and to take our wisdom and our power and to use it skillfully to order things and to give life and to make things good and beautiful. And then we are to rest. And we are to enjoy it. And in that way, we are like God in the world. And so there's a dignity to humanity. He crowned us with glory and honor. In the same way that we don't like God create from nothing, but we take the things God has made and stewarded them. So also glory is not something that comes from us, but it comes from God. But God gives it to us. He crowns us with glory. He gives us honor. So in verse 1, that glory that he sets above the heavens, it shines into our world and it shines through us, which means that we are valuable. Uh, we, are, uh, we have a particular um, purpose in life that, that the royal language uh, communicates to us that, that life is precious, it's valuable. We have such opportunity. So verse 6 says, you've given him dominion, over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet. There's a certain kind of wisdom and power that human beings have so that we are like rulers of the earth, that for the sake of all created beings, the, uh, what crawls on the ground and what flies in the air and what uh, swims in the sea, that's how Genesis 1 portrays things, we are to, um, to come to know what God is like and seek to be like God for the sake of the world. And so the task of the garden that God created is to fill the whole world with the garden, to keep cultivating so that the world becomes beautiful and life-giving. It's that picture that we get that reminds us that all of us are are meant to take the energy we have and engage in the life-giving activities. Now, we're all different. We have different interests, different skills, different abilities, and therefore we make different contributions. But there's something where we come alive when we find something that we're good at, that we enjoy doing, or that makes a difference in the world. Um, But life is complicated, and so if you find that you're failing in a number of areas, it it has the opposite effect. Um, It's important to remember that there's something wonderful about being alive and about 
taking the power entrusted to you and stewarding it in God's world in the way that God would, uh, to the degree that we can do that, it is energizing, it is life-giving. We live with a sense of honor and dignity. So the first thing is we are to be like God in the world. Now, secondly, I'm gonna talk about God in the world. And so Genesis 1 and 2 tells this wonderful story that I'm echoing here. It's still true. Your life can be wonderful. It can be fantastic. But I wonder how many of you are thinking, boy, that's not what I'm experiencing. I'm not finding myself energized by this. I'm finding myself overwhelmed, not skillful, not powerful enough. Um, something goes wrong. And the Bible tells that story. The Bible gives a vision of who we are and what we can be. But the Bible also tells us that something terribly wrong happened. And so in verse four, when it talks about humanity having dominion, I wonder how many of you thought that is so empowering, so ennobling to know that I can be one of the rulers of the earth. And I wonder how many of you found the word dominion making you nervous. It sounds like domination. What do human beings do with their power? Well, they don't steward it wisely. And therefore, rather than ordering things so that everyone flourishes, we take for ourselves, we try to be like God in the world, but not in the way that God intended. And so it's interesting when you read Genesis 3, the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent, where, where there's a betrayal, where there's a turning from God, part of the deception was the serpent saying, God told you not to eat the fruit of that tree, saying you would die. But could it be that God knows you will be like him, knowing good and evil? We go back to Genesis 1, God's purpose is that we would be like him. God is not um, trying to withhold any good. He's actually wanting us to be more like him. So there was something confusing about that message. Well, God said you shouldn't do that. And maybe it seems God knows you will be like him, knowing good and evil. And God wanted us to be like him, knowing good. God did not want us to know evil. And therefore, what Romans 1 that's in the New Testament, commenting on the Genesis story, says in an attempt to become wise, we became fools. We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for things, images of things on earth. That's one way of understanding our problem, that, that as image bearers who can look to God and see his glory and then go be like him in a glorious way in the world, instead of taking glory from God and enjoying it and returning it, we desired a glory apart from God. We thought, actually, maybe God's withholding something. And so if there is a glory I could have for myself, if, if I could be like God, that everyone's devoted to me and listens to what I say, wouldn't that be more enjoyable than my being devoted to God and doing what he says? And so now the situation of God in the world has changed. Human beings, image bearers are still here and there are echoes of the likeness of God in all of us. We still, for all of the things that are wrong with us, want something good. All of us have good characteristics, but this corruption makes it hard to see. The language of sin in the Bible covers, the image is covered so that reflection is no longer there. Now, because we don't see God in the world and because we're not bringing out the godliness in one another that we're led to worship, Having exchanged the true glory, we, we look for glory in the things God has made. That's the picture. That looking to God, we would see his glory and we would be made new. Not looking to God, we still have that desire for something wonderful, glorious, satisfying. 
and now we're seeking it in the things that are made, which is why all of us need to be reminded that your resume and your possessions and your status and your money and the opinions of others, all of these things, if, if you devote yourself to the things of this world, hoping that there will be glory, will be satisfaction, that you'll find that you're somebody, that your life has meaning, that somehow your desires are satisfied. If you're looking for God in the things of the world, the, the warning of the Bible is it will not work. Not only will you be greatly disappointed, but you will uh, be part of the disorder, the creating of the chaos. If you're seeking to take glory from these things, at some point, you will not have the dominion, the oversight, but you'll have that domination. You will try to plunder the world and take advantage of people around you. Um, we go into the world as empty people looking to find God. That's different than the Genesis 1 picture of people who are filled with God's likeness and sent into the world. So we're looking for God in the world, but the, but the Christian story is, is a warning. Don't make idols. Don't make images that strike you as, as something great and wonderful. But but look to what God presents to us. And that's where uh, the story of Jesus is important. Uh, in verse five, it says, uh, human beings are made a little lower than the angels. And there's this picture of this glory uh, in the heavenly realms where God has created, these angelic beings are created and they're worshiping God and there's uh, God's peace and God's ways. And then now below the line of the heavens, um, human beings are no longer a little lower than the angels. There's an interesting detail in the Genesis 3 story. Uh, what happens when, when Adam and Eve turn from God, immediately they experience shame. They're hiding. They cover themselves up with leaves. So they're not prepared for when they leave the garden, and it's a little bit windier out there than it is in there, that those leaves are not going to be sufficient protection for them. So uh, there's a, an interesting detail. God, um, uh, animals are slaughtered and the animal skins are put on Adam and Eve so they go out with their shame covered. And so in a certain sense, it's God's provision for people that are now embarrassed, humiliated. And it's a picture of, of now humanity, how we cover ourselves up. We don't like that vulnerability because of shame there. God covers us up. But remember, God made us in his image, placed us in the garden, be like me in the world. Now they're going out of the garden is a descent. They're gonna to return to the dust. They were made a little lower than the angels, but now they go out into the world looking and smelling like the animals. Now uh, they are creatures of instinct. Human beings are creatures of instinct. We have what we want. Uh, we want to reproduce, we want to eat, and uh, we will find sophisticated ways to create culture around it, but that's ultimately what we're doing. We're going out just to devour. We were a little lower than the angels, and now we're not that different from the animal. So Adam and Eve, their shame is covered, but it's covered in a way that makes them like all other created beings. And yet we still have such power and wisdom, but how do we steward it? Not in a way that leads to flourishing in life in all ways. So Jesus is sent into the world. <clears throat> Colossians 1 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And what's interesting is there are two places in the New Testament where Psalm 8 uh, is, is the, the teaching, the application. One is in Jesus' ministry himself. So on the Sunday, Jesus' last Sunday on earth, what the church calls Palm Sunday, it was the Sunday before he was crucified, 
It's called Palm Sunday because he comes to Jerusalem and people put palm leaves down or a certain crowd does as a way of recognizing his honor. He comes riding to the city of God where the temple is on a, on a cult of a donkey, which would be a royal picture of a king coming to a city, but coming peacefully rather than on a war horse with an army. He comes to bring peace. And we know how it plays out. This is Sunday. He's crucified by Friday. But he comes and there's people acclaiming him as the great king. And then he goes into the temple and he starts to turn the tables over because it's supposed to be a house of prayer, but it's become a den of thieves. And so even at the central place where we're not simply the nation of Israel should come and worship at the temple, but the vision from the time of Abraham would be all people of the earth should one day come. This should be a house of prayer for the nations. And what Jesus is saying is, uh, all people are not coming here to find God, but, but corruption has come even to this place so that when he, the one who comes with glory, the one in fulfillment of scriptures arrive, um, he is not recognized that, that the religious leadership, the secular leadership, they don't see his glory because he didn't have the trappings of human glory. He didn't come with an expensive outfit. He didn't come with an entourage. Um, he came with the reflection of God and his character. He came humble, uh, gracious, strong, and truth-telling. And he goes into the temple, and the lame and the blind come to him. <laughs> and the, the temple leaders are wondering what's going on, because they're looking at him, and they're starting to get anxious. Uh, these people, uh, the, the desperate people, know nothing. Well, they knew that there was something that they could receive. They weren't ashamed to draw near to Jesus. And then there's this interesting detail that, that while this is going on and as the religious leadership is getting more and more angry at this one who claims to be a king but does not look like a king, he looks like a guy that hangs out with the desperate, the children are sitting there singing Hosanna to the son of David. So, hey, if this guy's a prophet, he should know uh, kids don't belong in here calling you the son of David. So the religious leaders tell him, tell the kids to be quiet. And in that, Using the words of Psalm 8, Jesus says, Have you not read that out of the mouths of babes and infants there would be praise and glory? Uh, sometimes it's those of us who think we're wise and we're powerful and we have understanding who don't recognize what's really going on. And that was certainly the story of Jesus, that it was the children. It was the marginalized who recognized there's something in this person that, that, uh, that's valuable. They saw the character in him because they looked past the superficialities that most of us wouldn't have seen. So Jesus was not recognized for the king that he was, but he was mocked. Um, he was put, a crown of thorns was put on his head and a robe and he was crucified and nailed to a cross. The second place that we have a, a Psalm 8 referred to is in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, where then to the early church, how do we understand what happened to Jesus and how he fulfills scripture? And how do we understand the present time? It's remarkable how Psalm 8 became a teaching text. In Hebrews 2, uh, where Psalm 8, 4 through 6 is quoted explicitly, but I won't read it. You could look this up uh, in Hebrews 2, verses 6 to 8. But I want to talk about um, Hebrews 2, 8 and 9, where in in Presenting Psalm 8 to us, it makes this application about Jesus. Uh, the writer says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. 
but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There's really a lot there. If you, if you really get to know Psalm 8, you'll see even in this, the language of him being made lower than the angels. Well, there he was above the heavens in glory. And yet the one who made us in his image took on our likeness. That's Philippians 2. He humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. Uh, so we made an exchange. We wanted God's glory, but we foolishly gave up our wisdom and took the look to the glory of created things. Well, the one whose glory remains in heaven took on our likeness in order to come and to show us not only what God is like, but to show us what humanity could have been, should have been like. And so Hebrews says that he is the one who was made a little lower than the angels, Jesus, and he is crowned with honor and glory. Why? Because by the grace of God, he would taste death for everyone. And if our exchange was the, the truth for a lie, the glory of God for created things, life for death, Jesus comes to make an exchange, to trade things back, to restore things. His glory becomes his humiliation. His life becomes his death. And through his humiliation and his death, we receive life, we receive glory, we receive honor. He comes because the king comes for his people. Um, he is the true human being who does not use his power to take from others, but he gives himself for others. And therefore Hebrews rightly says, so all power and honor and glory should be his. Whoever lived like this in the world? We didn't see it, we didn't recognize it. We completely missed it. And when we mistreated him, he loved us. He gave himself for us. And in that regard, there's an important lesson here for us from Hebrews 2. It says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's part of this human experience. The Genesis 1 vision, here is all of this great world. Now make it better. And instead, our situation is the world feels overwhelming. No matter what we do, it's like Sisyphus. We try to roll the stone up and the stone is too heavy and we're too tired and it doesn't work. It looks like evil wins. It looks like corruption wins. We can't, we could postpone death, but we can't give life to people. We could try to create community, but then some gang is going to come in and ruin it. Uh, we could work out and, and uh, uh, avoid harmful foods and yet we could catch uh, diseases. And there's something about uh, life in this world that what strikes most of us is not the remnants of goodness and the wisdom of how God made things, but the overwhelming difficulty of the darkness and the disorder, the chaos. And we're told the same task is there, but go out, order it. Try to understand God's ways and you can make a difference and yet it feels futile. Um, this is a reminder that Jesus came and he did something remarkable. He brought the light of God back into the world. We can now look somewhere. Where do we find God in the world? And we're told, don't look at whoever's printed on the coin. Don't look at the titles on your resume. Don't go on YouTube and find who's getting the most views. You're not gonna find God in those places. But if you see him, you will see what God is like. And that sight will show you things that will bring life to you. 
in God's purposes, as life is coming to you and you go back out into this world, you are going to be part of bringing life to this world. So at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. On the earth, things are not ordered. Things are still disorderly, but it's beginning. It's like a mustard seed, it's growing. We now have uh, such advancements that through the church, things like hospitals and libraries and these various things to say, how can we make the, the world better? There's evidence that, that, that progress is being made, but you look out and you still see war and violence and death and suffering. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. And that's one of the important lessons is God's sense of minutes as a look to him, because when you see him, you will see me. And when you see me, you will start to see yourself. And that's going to change you. That's going to transform you. That's going to bring renewal because we're fundamentally image bearers. We're not meant to look uh, to the animals and make images like them. We're not meant to create money um, and, and devote ourselves to that because we will become like it, lifeless. We are to devote ourselves to God and then go out into the world. Um, in the days of film cameras before digital cameras, the two main kind of cameras most consumers used, the, the, the more typical one was called a rangefinder, and then there was the SLR, the single lens reflex camera. The rangefinder, there are some wonderful rangefinder cameras, but they're easier to, they're less sophisticated, you can make them cheaply. So most people owned cameras where there was a little window that you would look through and the window was right next to the lens. So basically what you saw through the window is what you would capture in the photograph. But the SLR was a bit more sophisticated. It has this mirror system in it. So when you look through the glass, what you see is what you see through the lens. Um, and it's interesting, one of the things that I remember from those days where you'd send your film off to get developed, that sometimes the film would come back uh, and there would be these blank pictures. And with a rangefinder camera, you're looking through this window and you're getting close enough if you're not a professional. Um, sometimes you forget to take the lens cap off and you don't know it. And with the SLR, you look through it and you will never leave the lens cap on, but that doesn't mean you'll take a great photo. Um, there's something about that mirrored system. You're, you're, you're seeing something much more closely proximating things. Uh, the Bible does not say, if you become a Christian, you will be the leader in your field. You will be happier than those around you. Uh, you will be healthier. That's not the promise of the Bible. Uh, but the warning is, if we're looking through a separate glass at the world, the cap may be on and we may be capturing nothing. You, you may have complete darkness. And if you're looking through the lens, through this reflection, there may be some blurriness, but, but at least you know it. You could start to clarify things. You, could, you can get a picture back and see what's wrong with it and then keep working on it. Whereas if all of your pictures come back dark because the, the lens cap was on it, you will not really grow and improve even if you're better at certain techniques. I'm sharing that to say that, that the Bible is saying there's something about how to live in the world that if we are being renewed as image bearers, if the, if, if the sin that covers up God's image is forgiven and taken from us, if the cap is taken off, to use the analogy, where everything's not going to be clear, everything's not going to be perfect, but, but the possibility of real growth, real change, you keep looking to God and God's likeness is being renewed in you, uh, you may not make the most money. You may not have every relationship go well, 
but there's something about your life that has a different outcome. You won't find yourself at the end of it. You were great in three areas, but it amounts to nothing. You'll find that maybe you were never worthy of taking photos for National Geographic, but you have photos of the people that you love because the lens cap wasn't on it. That's what we're told that, that because Jesus has come, we, we don't see all things in subjection. The world is not as it should be, but we see him. The one made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. Uh, and if we see him, he will bring that glory and honor into our lives. So the last thing I want to talk about, uh, the third thing, more of God in the world. I talked about being like God in the world, our purpose. The second, I talked about God in the world, that we look for God in the world and we find him in the wrong places, but actually God came into the world. And so third now, there should be more of God in the world. As image bearers, uh, the, the reclaiming of that task, if we're people who devote ourselves, if we worship, if we see God's goodness, that changes us. So we go into the world, uh, not the smartest, not the most skilled, not any of those things, but rightly oriented so that we can learn. Maybe we will become the smartest. Uh, maybe we will become kinder. I don't know uh, in any particular, uh, the details of our lives, but there's a, a more thorough renewal that's meant to happen because we have been cleansed. We have, there's been an exchange that we now have that honor. Um, and so in verses three and four, <clears throat> you know, Psalm eight is remarkably joyful, encouraging, uplifting, even though it says, you know, with the, in verse two, I think it is, out of the mouths of babes because of your foes. Okay, so there it is. It's named, all is not well. There's still enemies. So this is not this utopian vision of the world, but it's a way of looking into the world and, and seeing something that's still there. In verses three and four, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? It's a different way of seeing, rather than seeing the great things of the world and saying, I want that. <laughs> if I could get close to it, maybe that great thing will uh, spill some greatness to me. It's the opposite to say the world is so great that I feel tiny in it. When I look at the sun and the moon and the stars, I feel insignificant. So the pattern of the world is if you see yourself feeling insignificant, find something significant and grab it and do it and you'll feel fine. And we wind up feeling empty and humiliated. Here's somebody who looks and sees how vast the world is and would be tempted to feel significant, but says, but it makes me wonder who are we that you're mindful of us? Who are we, the, the descendants of Adam, that you care for us? Instead of looking at the world and saying it's so big and great, I will never be that big and great and I don't matter. There's been a transformation. I look at the world and it's so great that I wonder how could the creator of the world know about me? Why would the creator care about humanity? Why not get rid of humanity and give it to the lion? Give him the wisdom. And instead, there's something about the person that sees the greatness, the glory of God, who says, when I look at your work, it makes me wonder, how am I on your mind? How is it you remembered us? You didn't forget about us, but when we turned and wandered away, you came after us. How is it that despite all that we did, you still cared for us? And that is transformative. We do not yet see all things in subjection. The world is not perfect. But we look into the world and we see the remnants of God's goodness, and we're sobered by the mess that we have the potential to make, but we're reminded that despite it all, God remembers us. We're not forgotten. God cares for us, and we know this because he sent Jesus, so now we can see. 
we could see something. And what that means is it changes everything. And, and this series has been on relationships because Jesus says that when you love God and you love others, then it's evident that the work of the Spirit is in you. God first loved you, but that is meant to change you. And when his love is at work in you, then you don't have that self-centered seeking glory that's self-destructive because you're just one person in the world. And you could find a tribe that feels big and powerful enough, but in terms of the tribes of the earth, none will endure. But what we're told instead is that, uh, that because God sees you, because God cares for you, when you receive that, then your joy is not taking it and in, in increasing your name. But, it, but if, if, if he loved you that way, your love for him, if God was so generous and faithful to me, what could I do that would be generous and faithful to him? Verse 1 and 9, how excellent your name in all the earth. That's a joyful saying. If there's a God out there who you're hoping will give you what will make your life greater, there's no joy in the magnification of that name. If you see that that God knows you and cares for you and has given him very self, his very self to you, then to, to rejoice in that name, that joy becomes our joy. That glory becomes our glory. And then we find that though we are small and we are weak, uh, we are crowned with honor and with dignity. Uh, and it's amazing how things work out in the world, um, how they unfold according to God's plan when people see it. This week, I was at a gathering of pastors, and it was meant to, to be um, a space to encourage one another where there was supposed to be honesty. And so a lot of the, they would have people share personal stories, and there was Bible teaching. And this one guy stood up to, to give the morning devotion. This was the devotion Wednesday morning. And he was trying to encourage us from Isaiah um, because he had been through a difficult period that he's not fully out of. And, and he had a message for us, but his, his example was himself in that he, he, was, he had a great family. His life was going well. They felt God calling them to start a new church. And so he went and he spent 10 years um, serving the church, and they were good years, but they were hard years, but he was never able to raise up elders. They were never able to be financially sustainable. So about two years ago, the presbytery said, we're just going to need to shut the church. Okay, it was a good thing to do, right? Intellectually, he knew that it was faithful, that he did it earnestly. He said he spent a year laying in bed, feeling like an utter failure. And everyone would encourage him, you're a good pastor, you're great. He felt like an utter failure. And that's the nature of this world. He does not see all things of subjection, but he sees the church that he thought would bring glory to God not continuing. The interesting part of the story was he was appointed to give the devotion. He gave it, and then we took a break or whatever. And then there was a guy that wanted to stand up and share a story as well. Uh, and this was, it seemed unplanned, and the guy stood up, and he was talking about this guy that he knew that was having this huge impact. And as he was describing him, he was like, this guy was, he had been in the Marine Corps, and he did whatever it is that... If you, I don't know enough about the Marine Corps, but apparently as if being a Marine is not cool enough, this guy was like great within the Marines uh, and is now in his free time is mentoring kids at this local school. And he's so outgoing and so wisdom and so, uh, so wise. And, and he is so effective. This, this guy is saying the, uh, the impact that he's having is remarkable. And then he said, the reason I'm telling this story is because this guy's life fell apart. Uh, and then he went to that guy's church, and his life was transformed. And I'm like, what are the odds that these two people are in the same room? 
the one guy that stood up and said, I devoted 10 years and nothing happened. Failure. And somebody else stood up and said, I know a guy that went to your church and he keeps talking about how his life was changed there. And look what he's doing now in this other place. I found myself thinking, uh, I think all things are not ordered yet. Why did they not know about this? But, but they showed something of the nature of Christ, which is if you give yourself faithfully and don't succeed, you are not a failure. That's 1 Corinthians 10. Your labors are, uh, no, First Corinthians 10 is do all things to the glory of God. I'm now not remembering what the passage that says your labor is not in vain. You could Google that and you'll, you'll find it. My, my brain uh, grasped the wrong verse. But, uh, but there's something here to say, look, there, there is an inherent dignity and value we have because God bestows it on us. We don't make things from nothing. God has made things. God has sent you into the world to, to, to face something chaotic, the crying kids, the wrinkled clothes, uh, the, the team that you work on where there's only three people when there's supposed to be six, the computer that keeps crashing, the people that you keep serving that are not appreciative, all of the things that we experience in the world, we go out and we don't yet see things aligned. Uh, people are not reflecting the greatness and the glory of God, but we're still disordered. But we're told that if we see Jesus, if we seek to do all things for God's glory, then your labor is not in vain. And then, and then your evaluation of whether or not you're living well or whether or not you're successful is by a whole different standard. And so in 1 Corinthians 10, where it says, do all things to the glory of God, our pattern is we come every Sunday, we worship, we come and say, Lord, show us something of your grace. Remind us of your goodness. Help us to see that we have honor and dignity because we belong to you. And then we go back into the world and it says, whatever you do, do it for God's glory. For some of you, it's going to be changing diapers. For some of you, it's going to be writing a paper. For some of you, it's going to be making phone calls. For some of you, it's going to be trying to figure out what's next. Each of us are different. We have different gifts, different tasks. We're in different places, different struggles. Some of you are really seeing the orderliness. Things are coming together. You're thriving. Some of you are feeling like everything is falling apart. What we're told, though, is we still see him, Jesus Christ, the one who comes, the one who redeems, the one who was a little lower than the angels, and he lifts, up, uh, lifts us up, gives us life, uh, and therefore, um, yes, you can change the world. But I think in our individualistic society, the assumption is I need to go out and do something that is having such big impact. And Jesus' uh, concern is to create a community that's all looking to him, and we're all different. And if you feel like you are not having a huge dent in the world, well, join God and his people and go out into the world and try to be like God in the best way. Be truthful, have integrity, be compassionate, be wise, stand for what's right, be courageous, be generous. All of these things, if you go into the world and every day you say, whatever my task is, I'm going to do that. Is my task to do homework? This doesn't feel like God glorifying thing, but uh, that's what I've been given to do. I'm going to sit down and how do I do it to God's glory? The answer is not, it will glorify God if I get a perfect score, but it will glorify God if I sit down and realize this is what he's given me to do, and I will do it honestly and with integrity and to try to apply all the wisdom and skill. And if I find I'm not good at this, I'll find something else to do. But there's something about the human task that says no matter what the details of your life is, all of it can be meaningful if you see God. The warning is none of it will have any meaning if you don't. So we don't see all things in subjection, but we see him, Jesus, a little lower than the angels. Keep your eyes there. 
and you will find that the image is being renewed and shines more brightly through you. Let me pray for us. Our Father, even as we gather again, for many of us, hundreds of times in this church or some church, some of us may be new, um, we are still uh, disordered. Our, our desires are conflicted. Our lives are not together. Lord, in egotistical ways, we want to be greater than we are, and therefore in uh, untruthful ways, we feel far worse than we actually are. Lord, we are looking for things that are glorious, and we often look for them in things that are not you. And we confess our folly and pray that you would show us more of yourself, help the, the glory that shined in the face of Jesus Christ to be more bright in our lives so that we would come alive. Lord, help us to, to be renewed in that image so that your attributes would become our attributes. Your way of being in the heavenly realms would become our way of being in this earthly realm so that we would relate to the world in a way that gives life, that's fruitful, in a way that we could have confidence that we have honor and dignity because you gave it to us, not because we will find it by something we do in the world. So Lord, strengthen us with this good news and uh, help us in the work of this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.